Today's sermon is titled, Death by Defrenestation. Is there a person in this room who knows what defrenestation means? Okay, there's one. There's one. I would guess that you might know Ms. Chapman. There's two. Is that two? Let me ask you this. Does anybody in this room want to be defrenestated? No, you don't want to be defrenestated. I can assure you of that. Okay, so our sermon today is titled, Death by Defrenestation. Did anybody over here know what this, the word means? Okay, great. Well, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag just yet. Let's start with prayer. We're going to dive in to death by defrenestation. Father in heaven, beautiful day, big day today. Uh, Sam, Aaron, and uh, I think it's Ben are getting baptized. Father, there's graduates that are taking place. Holidays are just beginning. Uh, Father, it's a, it's a big day, beautiful day. And today we want to just spend a moment to reflect on you and your goodness. Father, sports have had our attention this week. The television has had our attention this week. Work has had our attention this week. Finances have had our attention this week. School studies have had our attention this week. The news has had our attention this week. And Father, right now we just want you to have our attention, our undivided attention for the next several minutes. Father, draw us in to your presence and reveal to us uh, a bigger, brighter, and better picture of who you are, and by extension, who we are. Father, we love you today, but we know that the real story is not our love for you, but your love for us. As we continue our journey through the Old Testament, a blazing grace, Father, today, illumine our minds, warn us, chasten us, rebuke us, encourage us, and may we come out the other side of this sermon, the other side of this service, better off than we were when we entered it, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say Amen. All right, if anyone wants to go to heaven, I could use a glass of water, and the Bible says whoever will give a glass of water to one of these little ones in my name will in no wise lose his reward. So if, if you're sort of questioning your, your heaven-mindedness or your heavenly, you know, uh, uh, destiny, if you could get me a glass of water, we can secure that this morning. Okay, I'm not kidding. I'm just really thirsty. I don't see anybody rushing, so I guess that's going to be you, Leon. I'd really like to get somebody else that I was less sure about them going to heaven. Okay, death by defrenestation. I don't know how you're doing, but, but I feel like I'm in a continual state, especially as we study the labyrinthine passages of the Old Testament, and we are fully enmeshed now in the somewhat labyrinthine, somewhat circuitous and complicated uh, guts of the Old Testament. I think when a lot of people get intimidated by the Old Testament or they think about the Old Testament, they're afraid of a lot of different people whose names they can't pronounce. They're afraid of a, of a bunch of kings and a bunch of wars and empires and dynasties, and, and they just find the whole thing kind of intimidating, where the New Testament is seemingly comparably easy to understand. It's the story of a guy named Jesus and the church, right? So it's a fairly straightforward story, where the Old Testament is like, okay, where are we? What's happening? Why is this happening? And under what circumstances is it happening? And so, for me, what I've been studying, especially now as I find myself thoroughly uh, enmeshed in 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, I, I like to just orient myself to remind myself of where we are and where we've come from. And I want to start by doing that today. I don't know how you feel, but if you, if you feel that at times the Old Testament is disorienting and depressing, does anybody feel that way besides me? Right? I tweeted that just this week. I said, the Old Testament can be disorienting and depressing to try to preach right through it. And anybody who thinks it's not has never tried to preach the entire Old Testament. But I think that's kind of the point. Ah, oh, there you go, Leon. It's, it's secure now, isn't it? You're in. Mark 9.41, brother, just look it up. It's yours. Okay. And it's cold, and the text actually says a glass of cool water. Man, he delivers the goods. Okay, so I think that's kind of the point. The point of much of the sort of difficult, distressing, complicated, convoluted Old Testament is that it, it is supposed to, at some level, induce despair. It's supposed to be like, what's going on? Why is this so complicated? Why is this so ugly? Why are there so many apostasies and departures from God's will and God's goodness and God's mercy? And I want to orient us here today to where we are at in this somewhat disorienting and at times depressing journey. Uh, I spent quite a little bit of time putting this together. It doesn't look sufficiently probably very complicated, but I wanted to be sure that, that we sort of had a sense of where we are and where we've come from. We decided, Jared and myself, to divide the Old Testament up into seven chapters, beginning family, Exodus, land, exile, uh, excuse me, kings, exile, and Messiah. We are now here. We are in kings, and we're going to finish up kings. Let me sort of tell you what's going to happen. 
Today and the next two Sabbaths, we're going to finish up Kings, okay? And then while you're on vacation, i.e. exile, we are going to go into exile from this series for four weeks, okay? So we're going to have other preachers that are going to come in and preach. I'll be down in Tasmania preaching for the big camp there and be on a short vacation. Um, And so we're going to go on our own temporary exile. And I've told the preachers that are going to preach during those four weeks, you can preach on whatever you want. It doesn't have to be the Old Testament. You can do... So I've got Blair has agreed to preach. Is that right, Blair? Yes, excited about that. Marty, is he here somewhere? He's already left. Marty's agreed to preach. And I've got, uh, I think it's... Sam is going to organize something. I'm putting you right on the spot there, Sam. And uh, I have another preacher, but I can't remember who it is. Have I asked anybody else here to preach? Anyway, it's scheduled. Um... So we're going to take a, a four-week break from our Blazing Grace series. I think Marty's already told me he wants to preach on Nicodemus. So that'll be a massive departure from the Old Testament series. And then when we come back, I think it's like January 16 or something like that, we will resume, we will come out of our exile, our vacation exile, to study the exile, which will be the penultimate chapter in our series. Right? This will be the chapter before we launch into our whole new series. It'll take us the rest of next year, which is going to be on Messiah. So... Messiah looks like it's just one of seven chapters, but in fact, this right here is going to be, and I'm not going to give away any more details than this, but this will be our study for the entire next year. And uh, the series, I'm so excited about it, I can scarcely contain myself. I'm not even going to tell you the title right now because I'm going to just going to build the suspense a little bit here. So here's where we're at. Now, that's a little bit difficult to read, perhaps, but I, I wanted it to be, I wanted to put everything in there. So What you have at the start there is Abraham, the call of Abraham, which took place circa 1800 BC, about 1800 years before the time of Jesus, and approximately sort of 2000 years-ish after creation, okay? So now here's an interesting thing. If you go right to the middle of this little diagram that I've made, you'll see that there is a dotted line, and down below it says BC. Uh, 930 BC, and that's the division. This is what we talked about last Sabbath, where with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, we had the first three kings, remember? We had King Saul, followed by King David, followed by King Solomon, and then the, 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 the kingdom was rent from the house of David. Remember, Jeroboam came out, and Ahijah took his garment, cut it into 12 pieces, and said, 10 tribes are going to go to Jeroboam, two tribes are going to go to Rehoboam, and from that point on, For the rest of the history of the Old Testament, we are dealing with the divided tribes. Okay, now here's a fascinating little point. You will notice that that takes place almost exactly at half point. In fact, it could be literally exactly at half point, just that we don't know exactly when the call of Abraham was. But it's virtually in the very center of the main story of the Old Testament, which is the Abrahamic story. So from the call of Abraham to the arrival of Messiah, right in the middle is where the wheels have completely come off. Israel is now a nation. They have entered the land. Their first three kings were uh, kings over the composite, 12 tribes of Israel, but now there's division. Okay? Now, if you notice, uh, I put the Exodus up there just to sort of, sort of orient you. That's, there's two theories as to when the Exodus took place. One school of thought says it took place around 1450. Another school of thought says, no, it was 200 years later in about 1250. Then you notice that uh, first temple here was began to be built by Solomon in uh, uh, 970 B.C. Just after that was the division. Forty years, of course, was Solomon's reign, which is why you have the the 40 years there between 970 and 930. The temple will be, the first temple will be destroyed, Solomon's temple in, uh, I keep wanting to say A.D., B.C., uh, 587, 586. And the second temple begins to be built in 516. Now, we're going to talk more about that when we get there, but just to sort of orient you to the big picture here, from, from 516 B.C. until A.D. 70, the destruction of the Second Temple, that is what is sometimes referred to as Second Temple Judaism. Okay, if, you ever, if you've ever read about or heard about sec- the Second Temple period, that is the period after the building of the Second Temple and up to its destruction in A.D. 70, which we'll talk about in in great detail at some point. Okay, so this is where we're at. Now, let me just sort of overlay where we're at. There are our chapters. The only chapter that's that's not present there is, of course, the beginning because that goes back to the pre-Abrahamic period and it just would have made the chart too, too, too small, too tiny. So you begin with the call of the family of Abraham. 
Then we have the big experience of the Exodus, which becomes the archetypal experience in the history of the children of Abraham, and it becomes an archetypal experience in Scripture. God calling His people out, calling His people out, calling His people out. Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. The children of Israel were called out of Egypt. Jesus Himself would later be called out of Egypt. The church was called out of an apostate Judaism. It's just a continuum. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, come out of her, my people. It's just a consistent, saturative, biblical theme, the Exodus. They then moved out of Egypt and occupied the land, but as we are now discovering, this occupation of the land is anything but like what God had hoped and intended. It's, it's piecemeal, it's, it's, it's all over the map, the, many of the, the, the pagan dwellers have remained in the land, and to, to further worsen matters, the Jews themselves, the children of Israel themselves, descendants of Abraham, are now participating in and are becoming active in the very worship of the peoples that they were supposed to drive from the land. And we're going to see a high point in that apostasy and departure from God's covenant today when one of the kings of Israel himself becomes a proponent of this worship and not just a proponent of it, but he actually marries uh, a high priest's daughter who was a worshiper of Baal, a high priest of Baal. So things are just going... I mean, just downhill very, very rapidly. And uh, that orients us, kings, exile, and Messiah. Okay, a little bit of continued orientation here. We now have to talk, if we're going to do so in a biblically responsible way, not just about Israel in a, in a, in a, in a homogenous sense, we have to continue to make distinction between Israel, the ten tribes, and Judah, the two tribes. And so let's just talk briefly about the kings and prophets of Israel and Judah. The kings of Israel go from the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, to the last king of Israel, Hosea. There are 19 kings in Israel, and this extends from just about 930 B.C. up until about the sea there stands for circa about 720 B.C. Okay, so a period of just about 200 years. Uh, Israel fades out of existence. We'll talk about this probably not next Sabbath, but the following uh, by Assyrian conquest. And in general, with a few exceptions, this is not very good children's story material. Like if you're looking at to tell a children's story, you want to base it in scripture, you're not going to spend much of your time in this period, probably. Um, okay, now the kings of Judah. This is from Rehoboam, the first king of Judah, all the way down to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Similar to the kings of Israel, there were 20. Okay, so 19 and 20. Extends from, again, about the same time after the, after the division of the empire in 930 B.C., to the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, in or around... Scholars debate whether or not it took place in B.C. 587 or 586. Okay? Now, you'll notice that that's almost 150 years longer than Israel lasted before they eventually disappeared into Assyrian conquest and captivity. Um, ended by Babylonian conquest, conquest, and there's more children's mystorial, uh, story material here, excuse me. Things like Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other stories. All right, now the prophets of Israel um, are, uh, Ahijah was the first prophet we just mentioned. He's the one that cut the garment, uh, Jeroboam's garment, up into 12 pieces. Uh, all the way down to Hosea. You could also make an argument that Nahum would be the last prophet to Israel, but really he was prophesying over Nineveh, uh, which was a Syrian city. Now, the best known of all the prophets of Israel are Elijah and Elisha. We're going to spend a little bit of time today on Elijah. We're going to tell the story of Elijah today, but I want to concentrate not on Elijah, but what might seem strangely on Jezebel, in fact. Um, there are many fewer canonical prophets in the prophets of Israel. What we mean by canonical is prophets that have books in Scripture, in the canon of Scripture. The word canon just means rod or measuring rod, like a ruler. And there are, there are only very few of the prophets to Israel that are canonical, that we actually have the books of. Um, there are fewer prophets in general. If you ever uh, just Google a list of the prophets to Israel and the prophets to Judah, there are many more prophets to Israel. And and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what's going on there? Did God love Judah more? Of course, the answer to that question is no. But what is going on is that Israel, and we're going to see this today, appears to be even more hard-hearted, more stubborn, more hard-hearted, more, frankly, unwilling to hear what God had to say. And there's a really good illustration in this. That God's like, hey, listen, if you'll listen, I'll, I have something to say. If you're not going to listen, why should I be talking? Okay. And uh, the canonical prophets that we have that were prophets to uh, the ten tribes of Israel are only these, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and again, you can kind of make the case for Nahum. That's it. All of the other prophetic books that you have, 
virtually all of the other prophetic books are prophets to Judah. So you think of the major prophets, we'll just switch over here. Isaiah to Malachi, more prophets in Israel as we've mentioned. Most of the canonical prophets, all of the so-called major prophets were prophets to Judah. Right? The four major prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and most of the minor prophets, people like Micah, Habakkuk, Joel, Haggai, etc., were to Judah. Right? So hopefully this sort of helps to orient you as to where we are and how the Old Testament is structured. And today we're going to spend time in one of the darkest and, and uh, saddest periods in Israel's history, and that is the period under the reign of King Ahab. Uh, from, page, uh, from Prophets and Kings by Ellen White, page 109, it says, From the time of Jeroboam's death, okay, that's who we talked about last Sabbath, to Elijah's appearance before Ahab, the people of Israel suffered a steady spiritual decline, right? It's just going down, 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 down. Ruled by men who did not fear Jehovah and who encountered, encouraged, excuse me, strange forms of worship. The larger number of the people rapidly lost sight of their duty to serve the living God and adopted many of the practices of idolatry. I'll just say here very briefly, I think I've mentioned this before. The radical and, and audacious claim of Judaism, what sets Judaism apart is that it was rigidly monotheistic. Jew, the, the Jews insisted astonishingly and quite uh, to the contrary of what every other culture around them was saying that there was only one God. That's what the word monotheism means, just one God. And they, were, they weren't just like suggestively monotheistic. They were rigidly monotheistic. There is only one God, the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And this one true God, which would have sounded absurd in, in the times in which they lived, talked to a guy, our ancestor named Abraham, and he made a covenant with him. Okay, so all of this sounds very elitist. It sounds very triumphalist, and it sounds very out of touch with the larger... Uh, culture in which Israel found itself, surrounded by polytheistic tribes and groups. So perhaps unsurprisingly, when Israel began to compromise on its commitment to Jehovah, commitment to Yahweh, the one true God, they began to hedge their bets. And they began to adopt some of the other deities and some of the other worship practices and some of the other gods of the surrounding cultures. So that Jehovah, Yahweh, became one among many. One God, and there were in fact many. Hey, listen, I want to I want to hedge my bets. Maybe this is the right one, or maybe that's the one. I want to keep this God happy because, and maybe it's this God or this God. And what's happening with Israel and Judah, but Israel to a greater degree, as we'll see here, at least initially, they're being absorbed into the prevailing culture of the day, what you might call the zeitgeist. The spirit of the age was polytheistic, and Abraham and his uh, descendants had insisted there was only one God, the true God, the Creator of heaven and earth. But this is now increasingly becoming uh, less and less a, a feature, a significant feature of Israel's national identity. They're adopting other gods. You have a little bit of the worship of Baal. You have these what are called Ashtaroths that are being set up, which are like feminine deities that some scholars believe that one of the things that made God so abhorrent toward um, the, uh, particularly the worship of Ashtaroth was that she was, and we have evidence of this or indication of this, a hint of it in the book of Jeremiah, she's called the queen of heaven several times. The queen of heaven, it's certainly pejorative. The queen of heaven, the queen of heaven. And the suggestion by some scholars is that it's almost as if in some strange amalgamation, some of the Jewish people or many of the Jewish people began to say that Ashtaroth was like the wife of Yahweh. And God is like, you have got to be kidding me. And we're going to see, in fact, that Ahab was one of the chief proponents because, again, as we've already mentioned, he married a daughter of a high priest of Baal. Okay, so things are going rapidly downhill, and that's basically our point here. You can notice just by this simple chart, this comparison, that, that Judah was far more stable, especially in the early, after the early separation, okay? So what you have here are the... the uh, kings of Israel and the, re and the times approximate that they reigned, that they sat on the throne of Israel. And so you begin with Jeroboam, 22 years, and Rehoboam and Judah, 17 years. That's what we talked about last Sabbath. But then shortly thereafter, you have Nadab, who's on the throne for just a few months. Uh, Basha, 24 years, but then look at this. Ella, 2 years. Zimri, 7 days. Omri, 12 years. And Ahab, 22. Right? You add all of that up, and it comes up to roughly the same as Rehoboam 17, Abijah 3, Asa 41, Jehoshaphat 25. So you have 
roughly the same periods of time, but here you have one, two, three, four, five, six, I think that's seven. Seven kings in Israel and only four kings in Judah, right? So there's this massive instability, this, this almost inherent instability in Israel where kings were coming and going. And not only were they coming and going, in some cases they were so perverse and so far removed from Scripture, uh, or so, so far removed from God's covenant that you know, just like this rapid turnover almost. Okay, a couple more points by way of review and then we'll get right into the text. One of the things that really struck me as I was studying, getting ready for today's sermon, is how much space is given to Ahab. If I said to you, probably most of you, I, th I think there are a number of what I would call really biblically literate people in this church, but for the average person, if I give you a piece of paper and said, write down 10 things about Ahab, I think probably many of you would struggle to do that. I would probably struggle to do that at some level. 10 things about Ahab. But if I said, write down 10 things about Solomon, probably many of you could do that. Now, here's an interesting point. Look at this. The story of Solomon in 1 Kings begins in chapter 3 and doesn't end until chapter 11. So that's 9 out of 21 chapters in 1 Kings. In other, words, in other words, just over a third of the whole of 1 Kings is devoted to Solomon, right? Now you think, and then it sort of goes through, and then there was this guy, and then there was this guy, and then there was this guy. But when you get to Ahab, something about Ahab, the chronicler like, hits the brake, slows down, and spends an astonishing amount of time on this guy who is a complete catastrophe. Okay, look at this. We're introduced to Ahab in the latter part of chapter 16, and the guy doesn't die. He couldn't die soon enough, but he actually ends up living all the way to chapter 22, right? So dis this is a hugely disproportionate number of, of chapters and, and space, data that's, that's dedicated to Ahab, considering that he was a complete disaster. And I think that was the chronicler's point. It's as if to say, look at how bad things have gotten. And while some of the other kings were just sort of glossed over, oh yeah, he reigned 20 years, oh, he reigned 17 years, oh, he reigned just a few days or a few months. What happens with Ahab is that he is in many ways the new low point. Judges was a low point, right? And now we're at like a new low point. And the chronicler says, hey, let me just show you how low it got. And not just how low it got, but let me spend a little time here, especially with Elijah and Elisha, the great overtures that God extended to his people to try to arrest their attention and to get them to wake up, right? There's this magnifying glass that's over Ahab that you just don't find in the rest of the kings of, with the exception of Solomon, in the whole of first kings, okay? And that's one of the things that really strikes you. You start reading through and it's just like boom, 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 boom. And as soon as you get to chapter 16, it just slows way down and you get this whole in-depth story, this saga of Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Um, let's go now to 1 Kings. Let's go to the chapters. 1 Kings chapter 16. And the latter part of chapter 16, beginning in verse 29. I put this up on the screen here for you so you would just have it. This is how we're introduced to Ahab. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel. Notice the, the word there, Baal, Jezebel. Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Ethbaal, none other than a high priest of Baal. And now you have the king of Israel marrying into one of the families that was supposed to have been extirpated from the very land. And so here again, the best language that I can come up with here on the spot is that the wheels have completely come off of God's covenantal intention in calling Abraham. That would be to put it mildly. It continues, he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So this is now right in the throne. God never intentioned for Israel to have a throne. He never intentioned for Israel and Judah certainly to be divided. But now, God's working with their plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Right here in the very throne room of Israel, Baal is being worshipped and served and a, a daughter of a high priest of Baal has been married. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal. Again, he was hedging his bets. He's just incorporated Yahweh now into many of the other gods. Yahweh is just one among many, right? He, so he sets up, yeah, 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 we got Solomon's temple, no dramas there, but we also have these other high places that Solomon had built and others. And so he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made, and some translations say, a wooden image. And, and the word here is an Asherah or an Ashtoreth, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's basically a pole or it could have been a, a, sort, of, a, a sort of straight statue uh, of a woman, of a female Canaanite 
deity. And as I've already mentioned, some scholars believe that what was particularly offensive about this was that it was as if uh, Ashtaroth was like the wife of Yahweh. So it's just absolutely absurd. Uh, continuing on here, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So this is as a new low point. Right, so we've gone down to Judges, and then it's just down and down and down. And now the chronicler wants you to know that this guy, this was like rock bottom up to this point. Astonishingly, it will not be rock bottom in the Old Testament, but it's rock bottom to where we've got to this point. And that's what I opened with. The Old Testament feels disorienting and disturbing, and it's supposed to. It's supposed to make us long for something better, to long for something more. And that something better is not just a something, but a someone. And we'll be talking about him all next year. Uh, this is how the story of Ahab kind of comes to a close. He doesn't die until chapter 22, but this is 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. But there was no one like Ahab, Anna, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Now watch this. This is fascinating. What's that next word there? Can you read that next word? To do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And what's the next word? Because or for this reason. That's the purpose that the word because serves in the English language, right? Because or this is why. Why? Why was Ahab such a deadbeat? Why, was he, why did he depart so manifestly from God's covenantal intention for Israel and the descendants of Abraham? Because, and what's the next word? Because Jezebel. You, you could summarize the whole sermon in those two words. Because Jezebel. Jezebel, but I'm still looking forward to telling you what defrenestation means, okay? Because Jezebel's wife stirred him up. I looked this up in many translations. I thought that's a funny thing to say. Ahab was like no king before. He was a complete disaster, absolute catastrophe, hell in a handbasket, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So I looked that up, stirred him up. Some translations say because Jezebel incited him. The word, some, some translations say because Jezebel seduced him. Because Jezebel allured him. The word is Jezebel moved him. Jezebel moved him. I want you to think about that. Look at this glass that's here right now. Look at this. Watch this. See that? The reason I can move this is that it doesn't have a will or a, a volition of its own. It, can, it can't resist me. Right? I can move this glass. I can move this mic stand. I can do what I want with it. And, and that seems to be the portrait that's painted by the chronicler of Ahab. The guy has no spine. He has no principles. He has no conviction, no passion. He is a pawn. He is putty in the hands of his wife, who in fact seems to be the one who's really ruling things. And you're going to see that here. That's what the chronicler says. Hey, the reason this guy was a disaster was because Jezebel was moving him. As somebody moves a pawn on a chessboard, he behaved very abominably in following idols. Now, this was a very difficult sermon to prepare, not because the content is particularly difficult, but because there's just so much, right? The story of Elijah, there are at least a hundred sermons that could be preached from chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20, at least a hundred sermons alone on the experience of Elijah. And I'm was halfway tempted to preach a sermon that I'd already written years ago called, You Are Not Alone, But You Are, But You Aren't. Right? So that would have been easy. Just preach a sermon you've already written. The difficult thing is to read through this volume of material, and, and there's a sermon in these three verses, and there's a sermon in this half of the chapter, and there's a sermon in this verse, and there's a sermon in this whole narrative. It's all over here. And the temptation for me was to concentrate on Elijah. He's the obvious uh, protagonist here. He's the hero of the story. He's the one that shows up and sternly rebukes and withstands the apostasy of Ahab under the influence of Jezebel. That's the temptation. What's the temptation for me? We will talk a little bit about Elijah. But as I was studying this this week, I just kept finding my mind getting drawn to Jezebel. Right? Jezebel. What, her influence, she was the one that created, according to the chronicler here, she formed and fashioned and created a situation in which Ahab became the worst version of himself. I want to talk about Jezebel today. We're going to have to talk about Elijah because this is part of his story. So come with me to chapter 17. In 1 Kings chapter 17, I've basically outlined the chapter for you here very easily that Three things basically happen in chapter 17. Elijah shows up and proclaims a drought in the land. Let's just read the first few verses there. 
Chapter 1, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, we're not told how he came into Ahab's presence, the circumstances under which he came into Ahab. No, he just came into Ahab's presence. And he said, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Yes, he was standing before the king, but he knew he was standing really before the king of kings. He says, Before whom I stand, there will not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Get away from here and turn eastward to hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And my autocorrect there turned it into the brook Cherish, but that's actually the brook Cherith. And so Elijah goes and hides by this little brook, uh, probably spring-fed, uh, and it had a fairly consistent water supply, and he stays there for a time. Okay? But then even eventually the brook Cherith. The drought was so severe in the land that even the brook Cherith dries up, and he eventually has to leave, and he goes to uh, a widow, a widow of Zarephath, and he finds, this is a beautiful story there where, where he arrives and he says, please bring me some water, I'm just so thirsty, and bring me a little something to eat. And the widow says, are you kidding? I just came out right now to collect a few sticks because I'm going to make a fire and we're going to make a few cakes with our last little bit of flour and then me and my son, we're going to die. And then Elijah's like, listen, trust me, make me a cake and bake it as fast as you can. <laughs> Had to throw that in. Um, then you're going to be all right. And that's exactly what happens. She goes in, she makes this little, you know, food for Elijah, brings it out to him, and then her pots begin to fill up. And there's, there's just so many sermons right there, but I'm just racing over that part. Okay, that's chapter 17. Elijah finds himself in the presence of Ahab, promising that there would be a drought. Now we come to chapter 18. These are the highlights of the highlights, Okay. Elijah meets Ahab in the wilderness. The drought now has gone on for years, about three years it appears to be. And Elijah, excuse me, Ahab has gone out with his right-hand man, a guy by the name of Obadiah. And uh, we're told about Obadiah that Obadiah feared Yahweh, that he was a worshiper of the true God, and that Obadiah had actually hidden secretly 150 prophets followers and worshipers of the true God in three caves and fed them with bread and water. Obviously, he's a very brave man because this would have been at the hazard of his own life because we're told at this point that Jezebel, and let's just go check this out. We're told that Jezebel was actually killing the prophets of, of Israel, probably because when Elijah had gone in and said, oh, there's going to be a, a drought, they'd been like, oh, yeah, drought schmout. But then when it didn't rain for months, and it didn't rain for a year, then it had rain for two years and three years. She's like, man, it was one of those prophets of, of Israel that, that pronounced this on us, and so I'm going to get vengeance. And they're scouring the land looking for Elijah, can't find him. So when she can't find the guy she's really after, and Ahab can't find the guy he's really after, they just start slaughtering all of these guys. But Obadiah was like, no way. And even though he was the, the head of Ahab's house, he hid these prophets away, okay? Now let's begin in chapter 1 of 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year and said, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a severe famine in Samaria and Ahab had called Obadiah who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly for so it was while, notice this, Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 150, of the, had taken 150 prophets and hid them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. Clearly a brave man. Chapter, uh, verse 5. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Listen, go into all the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the brooks, and perhaps we will find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went the other way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and he fell on his face, and he said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? You know, this is the guy that's been the most wanted guy in the land for three years now, and he just shows up when they're out looking for some springs to water their livestock. And Obadiah astonishingly recognized him. He said, whoa, I I I Elijah? Is that you? Verse 9, and then Obadiah, what he says is quite funny. He says, how, is it that, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from his kingdom or nation that, that, that they, they could not find you. And uh, he says, now I'm going to go. So basically these people took an oath and said we couldn't find him. So that he wanted to be sure nobody was hiding him. So he said, now I'm going to go tell my master Elijah is here. And it's going to come to pass that as soon as I go to tell him, the spirit of the Lord is going to catch you to a place that I don't know. 
he says, and then we won't be able to find you, and he's going to kill me. And I love this, verse 13. Uh, he says, was it not reported to you, Elijah, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and I fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master that Elijah is here. He's going to kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and that would have been an awkward conversation. Yeah, I was looking for a spring of water, and I found Elijah. And he's like, you found who? No, I found Elijah. He wants to talk to you. So they gallop over there, make their way there. Verse 17, then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, is this you, O troubler of Israel? Oh, this is one of the great questions in all of Scripture. Oh, it's you. You're the one that's troubled Israel thus. And Elijah's response is also one of the classics. And he answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord, and you have followed Baal. You call me a troubler of Israel for telling you the truth? The real troubler of Israel is you. Verse 19, now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at the top of Mount Carmel. Gather those 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and he gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And what takes place is one of the great showdowns in scripture. Right? Many of you would be familiar with this story. You can summarize Elijah's chief critique of Israel in verse 21. Elijah came to all of the people gathered there at the top of Carmel. How long will you falter between two opinions? It's real simple, guys. If Jehovah is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. This was a direct affrontery to the polytheism, the prevailing polytheism of the day. He's basically saying you can't hedge your bets. You can't just incorporate Jehovah into your, your other gods, the pantheon of deities that, you know, that are here and then beyond the realm of Canaan. He says, look, it's, it's this or it's this. It's not both. Right? Because that was the safe thing to do. Well, we're not sure. It could be Baal or it might be Yahweh. So we'll just go. We'll worship both. And Elijah says, no, you're faltering. You're halting between two, uh, two, two opinions. A double-minded man is unstable in his ways. Which is it? You've got to make a choice. And then this marvelous... Uh, dramatized uh, uh, situation takes place in which they each bring a sacrifice and the prophets of Baal dance around their sacrifice trying to get fire to come down to consume the sacrifice to prove that Baal was the true God. Elijah begins to taunt them, you know, hey, maybe you're not praying hard enough, maybe you're not cutting yourself enough, maybe your God's asleep, maybe he's gone on a vacation. And when they are finally exhausted, Elijah then says, okay, get me three pots of water and douse this sacrifice so people know there's no tricky business here. Pour water, 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 three pots of water. And then he kneels down, he prays three times, prays several times actually. And when he prays seven times, this, this fire comes and consumes the sacrifice. And it's very interesting what happens as the sacrifice is consumed. Check this out. We'll pick it up in verse... 35. So the water ran all around the altar, and it filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at that time, at the time of the offering, the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. This people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts. As we've already mentioned, that's a hugely important word in 1 Kings. Turn their hearts back to you. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord whoosh, fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and they said, Jehovah is God. Okay? This was a very dramatic and singular way to arrest the attention of the people and to let them say, to let them see this polytheistic hedging your bets thing is not going to work. Jehovah is not just God in some general sense or in some aggregate sense. Jehovah alone is God. He's the only one. He is God. And Baal, he couldn't even get a spark on that sacrifice. But the fire of the Lord whoosh, consumed this drenching sacrifice, licked, licked, uh, licked up all the water that was in the trench, and the people were like, whoa. They fall on their face. This is an act of extreme humility. 
and of, of astonishment, and they begin to say, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. Okay, that's basically chapter 18. Showdown at Mount Carmel, the three-year drought ends. At this point, Elijah says, listen, I hear the sound of rain. He begins to pray. There's a small cloud that starts to rise, and it begins to fill the whole sky, and suddenly black clouds as, as hadn't been seen for years are filling the sky, and uh, uh, Ahab begins to make his way back to his palace to, to re relay all of this to Jezebel, the one who was really in charge, and Elijah gets out in front and runs ahead. That's chapter 18. Okay? Now, chapter 19. These are the three chapters we're going to look at today. Okay, let's begin in verse 1. Let's just do the quick review, then we'll look, we'll look at it in more depth. Ahab comes and informs Jezebel. Elijah flees from Jezebel, and God reveals himself to Elijah. Let's go to 19, chapter 1. It says, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Goes back and reports, hey, listen, I got bad news. Uh, not, she's like, it's raining. Isn't this great news? Look at the rain. Look at, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember those like 450 prophets of Baal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are they? Well, they, they, they are, they've been separated from their heads. Uh, they're all dead now. And uh, remember those 450 prophets of Ashtaroth? Yeah, yeah, they're all similarly separated from their heads. They are all dead. What do you mean they're dead? Yeah, Elijah killed them. Who, who killed him? Yeah, Elijah slew every prophet of Baal and every... I mean, what a stud. Elijah, Elijah, if you made a movie after chapter 18, man, you'd have to cast like Russell Crowe as Elijah. You'd have to be like some dude, some guy who could just stand, how long do you halt between two opinions? If the Lord is God, you know, it'd be some like epic thing. And he's just like, he's got that little scruff, you know, he's just looking the part and he's muscular and they get the side lighting and he just looks the part, right? He's a dude, right? And not only is he a dude, after he, after the fire comes down and consumes, then he goes over and single-handedly personally, as, as if in a personal effrontery had been done to him and, and his God, kills every one of these prophets. I mean, this guy is a dude drenched in blood, the blood of the prophets, and then, he, and then as if that's not enough, this guy gets out in front of horses and races back to the palace. I mean, this guy is an absolute stud right up to this point. And what happens next, frankly, defies belief. It's one of the reasons that we can believe the Bible, because the Bible tells stories that you could not have made up. You just wouldn't have written it this way, but this is what the text says. Then Jezebel, I'm in verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, so let the gods, plural, polytheism. So let the gods do to me that slaying that you did. May the same thing happen to me. And even more, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. Now you would think, if you, if, if, if you didn't know the rest of the story, you would think that it would say something like this. So Elijah met Jezebel the next day. It was the showdown at the OK Corral. And Elijah thrust her through with a spear and cut her head off. Yeah, that's not actually what happens. Verse 3 says, And when he heard that, he arose and ran for his life. He ran for his life, and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. In fact, the guy runs and runs and runs and runs. He runs so hard that he basically passes out of exhaustion. An angel has to show up, gives him some food, and then he runs some more. The guy, this guy is absolutely terrified. So he can stand atop you know, Carmel's summit, show down the false prophets, slay them with the sword, with his own drenched in the blood of the false prophets. And the something about this Jezebel. Because the moment he hears that Jezebel says, hey, listen, if I'm not dead by this time tomorrow, you sure will be. He's like, whoa, Jezebel? <laughs> Takes off. Now, this is not Russell Crowe. I don't know who's playing him now, right? It's like, I can't come up with some, I don't know very, very many actors, but it'd be like, it'd be like, Macaulay Culkin or something, you know, like the, the home alone little boy, like, choo, you know, taking off, fleeing. I think that's his name. I'm not sure. Okay, so here we go. What's going on here? It would seem, I think that's an understatement, Ellen White. It would seem, she says, in chapter, uh, page 159 and 160 on Prophets and Kings, it would sure seem, agreed, that after showing courage so undaunted, after triumphing so completely over king and priests and people that Elijah could never afterward have given way to despondency or been awed into timidity. Awed into timidity. I love the language here. What was he awed into timidity by? And the answer 
is Jezebel. Now, you would sure seem that you wouldn't run from a girl after that. No offense, ladies. It, ju- it just would seem, and I, I, I resonate with that. It does seem that way to me as well. But he who had been blessed with so many evidences of God's loving care. I want to ask you a question. Have you in your life, take a look at your life. I'm 43 years young. Look at your life, however young or old you are here today. I want to ask you a question. Have you been blessed with so many evidences of God's loving care? I'm asking you a question, church. Have you been blessed with so many evidences of God's loving care in your life? Yes or no? Okay, so you've been, you have evidences from that time you were, you know, you prayed that your kitten would get down out of the tree and God answered the prayer. And that time that you lost your wallet and you absolutely needed to find it and you found it. That happens to me every day. That time that you, whatever that thing was and you know, those moments, those, those aggregate composite moments and you've built up, you know, depending on how old you are, I suppose, the, you know, Agnes and, uh, and Milton and Betty and, and some of the older saints here in our congregation, they would just have a battery of experiences on which to draw right, that reflect the goodness and mercy and love of God toward them, right? Even the young teenagers would have something to say, I would imagine. Some answer to prayer, some indication of God's goodness and providence. He who had been blessed with so many evidences of God's loving care was not above the frailties of mankind. See, the actors on the silver screen are just actors. It's it's not real, That's why they can come off looking so amazing and so awesome and so astonishing. The people in the Bible aren't Russell Crowe, right? They're they're, they're like human beings like you who can go from, from, from tremendous heights of faith and ministry and confidence and then because of the frailties of humanity, you can just be suddenly despondent and discouraged and fearful and it can happen in just a moment. Has this happened to anybody else? You're just, you're just like, hey, what, what happened? I used to be so strong in the faith. I used to be so passionate. Man, that drives me crazy when people say that. Oh, yeah, when I first came into the faith, I was on fire. Well, really, what happened since then? No, oh, my fire went out, but I still come to church. What? What do you... Really? Really? If you've been in the faith for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, or even five years... Your fire should be more today than when you first came into the church. Can somebody say amen? First came, no, 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 I used to be so on fire, but I'm over that now. You've settled into what? What have you settled into? Well, that's one of the reasons I want to get new chairs in this place. These things are way too comfortable. You just, it's just like a metaphor for the Christian life. You just come to, you come to King's Cliff. We got the most comfortable chairs on the Gold Coast. You just sort of settle in, lean back. And this is a metaphor for many of our Christian experience. Like, yeah, I, I like the way Pastor Ashrick preaches. He, preach, he can keep me awake. And for many people, this is like the sum total of your Christian experience at this point. Yeah, yeah, I learn a lot when he preaches. So comfortable in this church. Turn the air conditioning on and looking forward to that haystack. Right? Am I kidding? It's like, it's like a little weekly vacation. Right? It's like Club Med for Adventists. Like, just come and just chill and just enjoy yourself. Hear a good sermon. He does preach a little long, though. I sure wish he'd shorten those sermons up, but anyway, at least, I, at least I'm mostly aware. Right? You know I'm talking to you, Daryl. I'm talking to you wherever you are. I'm talking to John, but he's not here now. Okay, so look at this. The frailties of mankind, and in his dark hour, his faith and his courage forsook him. He's running from a girl. Man, I tell you, when you read this story, there is something mysterious, powerfully, and utterly irrational about Jezebel. You cannot make sense of this story. I mean, how do you make sense of him standing as a man and as a stud at the height of of courage and bravery and and, uh, passion and conviction? And then the moment he hears that Jezebel says, if I'm not dead by this time tomorrow, you will be. He's like, ah, and he flees, right? There's something hugely irrational and powerful and mysterious about Jezebel. Look at this. Revelation chapter 20, the only time that Jezebel occurs in the New Testament, the only time in writing to the church at Thyatira, nevertheless, John says, Jesus says through John, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Now, this isn't the literal Jezebel, of course. This was a new person who had sort of assumed the same persona of the Old Testament Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. That's an allusion to her associations with Baal. And and she teaches and seduces Remember that word? She moved, she stirred the heart of of, of Ahab. Seduces, 
allure. She has a power. It's a mysterious, strange power to allure and to terrify at the same time. To commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Continuing on in Revelation. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, as you read the story in 1 Kings, nothing expressly sexual is communicated. I, I looked for it. I, like, I thought, oh, surely it's going to be there. The, the, the only sort of suggestive sexual thing that we have is that at one point, you have the word allure, she allured, she seduced, she moved, she enticed, she stirred up, whatever that is. There is, does seem to be some sexual connotation there. And then just before she dies, she paints herself up, up well, presumably with like makeup to look sexy. By this time, she's a grandma, by the way. And... Um, then she like bats her eyes at a guy who then defrenestates her. We'll come back to that in just a second. What's going on with this woman? There's something sensual, something powerful, something alluring, something irrational and ridiculous about this woman. That she could stare down one of the prophets, one of the bravest and most courageous prophets of God. Ahab was weak in moral power, it says in Prophets and Kings 1.15, unprincipled with no high standard of right doing, his character was easily molded by the determined spirit of Jezebel. Easily molded. From Review and Herald, October 16, 1913, Ellen White writes, Elijah had expected much from the miracle wrought on Carmel. After that fire came down, he thought, man, this is going to be so easy. I'm coasting now. His disappointment was keen. He had hoped that after this signal display of God's power, that Jezebel would no longer have influence over the mind of Ahab and that there would be a speedy reform throughout all of Israel. He thought there would be no resistance. Like many of us, I think, if I could use an analogy here, an imperfect one, though I think a profound one. Many of us became believers in Jesus. We were on fire and we expected little resistance. We thought things are going to be smooth sailing. And when that first resistance comes, whether it's a cancer test that comes back positive or a child that doesn't want to have anything to do with God or a financial situation, when some, or the church is just sort of, you know, at Club Med and it's hard to get, you know, things moving, you're just like, ah, you can become discouraged. You think it's going to be easy. You think, oh, from here on out, man, we're going to, me and God, we're going to be, you know, just absolutely kicking goals. And that doesn't happen that way. And it, you can get discouraged and the frailties of mankind, the frailties of humanity can begin to overcome you. I did a very interesting thing. You notice there at the top two uh, sentences, it says Jezebel would no longer have influence over the mind of Ahab. I just did a very interesting thing as I was reading through page after page after page in preparation for this sermon. I noticed that those two words came up regularly. Jezebel influenced. Jezebel influenced. Jezebel influenced. And so I did a little search in the, in the exhaustive writings of Ellen White. I just typed in those two words, Jezebel influence, and it's like 30 times. This woman had influence. There was something, again, mysterious and powerful and hugely irrational about this woman's power. I just have a question for you. I don't have an explanation, by the way, other than it's satanic and supernatural, but I want to know, what's the Jezebel in your life? What is the thing? What is the thing that you cower before? It might be simultaneously crushing and alluring to you. What is the thing in your life that allures you and makes you the worst version of yourself? That's certainly what happened with Ahab. Ahab was a king in Israel, man. If he had had anything bearing any resemblance to a spine, he could have done some good. But you just get this like, you know, malleable, you know, putty picture of him completely under the uh, influence and, and guiding and, and, and leading of Jezebel. What's the Jezebel in your experience? What's the thing you can, you can be absolutely spiritually like here, yep, kicking goals and on fire and things are happening over here, but when you face this thing, you just have no spiritual power. My suspicion is that all of us in this room have something that has a mysterious and irrational power over us. Maybe it's money. I mean, we all know intellectually, what a ridiculous thing, right? It's going to burn. We can read the book of Ecclesiastes and see that the people that are wealthy have no more happiness. And then we can see things like I just read this week, that Mark Zuckerberg is giving away his nine, or $95 billion fortune. Like the people that have lots of money are giving it away and we're clamoring to get it. And it's like, but money, there's something about it. It can just have an irrational, you know, that, car, that new car is no better than last year's car. You don't need it. You know you don't need it. You, just, oh, you get that new car fever. 
you smell that new car or that new boat or you just got, what is it, maybe, or for some it could be, you know, just get in front of that computer and just, I got to look at more naked people because maybe I'll see somebody who has three breasts or something. Maybe this one will be different. No, they're just, no offense, but naked people look all basically the same. No, no, I just got to look, right? Maybe this is the thing, pornography, that just has a power over you and you can resist every, every other area. Yep, yep, check, 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 check. But when you're confronted, it just has a power over you. Or maybe it's gossip. You just cannot keep your mouth shut. You just cannot. If you're going to say something about someone, half of the time it's going to be unkind or inconsiderate or, or undermining. I, I don't know. I, I literally don't know. I, I guess I could come up with a pastoral list of what it could be. But, but I would be of the opinion and of the mind. The main reason I would be persuaded this way, by the way, is that the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen upon this church with the power that it could and should. So there just has to be something in our lives some Jezebel power over us. We can win this war, but we got this thing over here that's just like, yeah, we'll just... Maybe it's sports, man. We live in a world that's just consuming. The nature of the pull of sports is like gravity. And there's nothing wrong with an appreciation, but some are just like sucked into it. I don't know what it is for you. It could be anything. But I want to know what is that thing that allures makes you the worst version of yourself. The thing of which you are afraid and which you feel powerless against. And what happens to Jezebel is fascinating. She becomes defrenestated. She's thrown out of a window and she dies and she gets eaten by dogs. And the Bible goes into great gory detail that all that was left was her skull. It's just like this really gnarly story in 2 Kings chapter 9. You're just like, ooh, ooh, really? That's in there? But beloved, I want to... When you have something that has that kind of power over you, that kind of influence that can lead a whole nation, can lead a whole person, could lead a whole family down, I want to tell you, that thing needs to die a public, violent, humiliating death. So my advice to you is to throw whatever that thing is out the window. You say, oh, I've been trying to throw it out the window forever. But maybe you missed this part. You need Jesus' help to do it. Whatever that thing is, or things, maybe it's fear, maybe it's, maybe it's anxiety, I don't know. It's not always going to be the same thing. It's going to be different things for different people. But I'm telling you, there's something that is very likely preventing you from becoming the best version of yourself, the thing that God has created you and made you and fashioned you and formed you to be. Maybe it's just laziness. I think that would be true for many people in this day and age, that it's not really any like nefarious thing. It's just complacency. The Bible calls that Laodiceanism, just like, eh, let them do it. Let those coal porters get up here and do it. You guys go knock on the doors. You go sell books. We'll clap when you tell us the stories. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Maybe it's just a complacency, a comfort level with where, hey, yeah, no, no, we're good. No, we're fine. I don't know what that thing is, but I just want to urge you with Jesus' help to take and throw that thing out. The history of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, it feels like it's spiraling rapidly out of control. Some of you might feel like your life has been spiraling rapidly out of control. The whole time we read the Old Testament, though, you cannot escape this sense that the whole thing is completely unnecessary and absurd. Why is Israel spinning out of control when the, when the true God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, the God who split the Red Sea, the God of power and of might and of creation. That's the God that they serve. And yet they're just tumbling, stumbling, fumbling, increasingly out of control. And I want to say to you, you do not worship an idea or a concept or a philosophy. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is alive, beloved. He is alive and he is mighty and he is mighty to save and he is God. Beloved, when that fire came down and consumed the sacrifice, the people said these words. This is all they said. Jehovah is God. Funnily enough, that's exactly what the name Elijah means. Eli, Elohim, God, Yahweh. Yahweh is God. And I want to tell you, the beginning of the rest of your spiritual journey starts with this simple idea. Yahweh is God. He is alive. He is real, he is powerful, he is awesome, he is forgiving, and he wants to do some great stuff in my life, 
in my family's life, in your life, in your family's life, in my neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in my community, in your community, in this church, if you're a visitor, in your church. God is alive and well and ready to be God. Can you say amen? So go this week. This week. Go grab Jezebel by the scruff of her neck and throw her out the window. That's what defrenestation means. Throw her out the window. Whatever that thing is that has power over you or things that have power over you, by the grace of God, say, Lord, what am I doing? Pick them up. Pick that laziness, that comfort, that pornography, that whatever the thing is, that gossip, that unkindness, that unfaithfulness in finances, that passion for material things, that consumption with sports, whatever it is. I don't know. I, I, that's just all I can come up with on the spot. And just huck it out the window. And let God have control over your life. Be a follower of Jehovah. I, I feel inclined to say, though I'm no Elijah, how long will we halt between two opinions? If God is God, let's serve Him. Amen. Father in heaven, you are God. And not some picture or, or image or... You're not just some idea, some concept, some philosophy. You're not just something that we use to win an argument with a friend, a religious argument. And Father, you're certainly not the great big teddy bear in the sky or, or the dispensary of, uh, of sweet and nice novel blessings. Father, you are Jehovah. You reign supreme over the earth. And though at times right now it appears as though your reign is significantly mitigated by men and by angelic, uh, demonic agencies. Father, we believe that you are the true God and that you are just as powerful today as you have ever been and that you want to be powerful not just in a grand and corporate sense, but that you want to be powerful in our lives. And so, Father, I pray for the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church and for all the churches that are represented here and for all of those that are watching on the YouTube channel. Father, whatever that Jezebel thing is, Father, teach us how and help us just to grab her by the scruff of her obnoxious neck and in the power and strength of Jesus to huck her out the window so that we can get on with this plan, this direction, this purpose, this joy, this dream, this hope that you have for our lives and for our churches and for our families. Father, we love you. And we pray that these dusty old stories and their dusty old characters would come alive in 2015 in our experience and in our church. In Jesus' name, let all of God, let all of the people who say that Jehovah is God say with me, amen. God bless you all.